when people think of just buying stuff, it's not all egregious and awful, but lawful. It's not super bad. Usually in the workplace in particular, bias is subtle. It's when you have two options and you choose one option for a certain group of people and another option for another group. And if I called you on it, you could justify either one because both of them are options. Welcome to another episode of Success Through Failure. This is your host, Jim Harshaw Jr. And today we're bringing you Dr. Bryant Marks. So much of what we talk about here on Success Through Failure is about mindset, unlocking the power of our mind. We've talked about revealing limiting beliefs and the unconscious wiring that often controls us in our actions. Oftentimes we fail and because of that failure, we tell ourselves a story that you know we're not good enough or not smart enough or not capable enough, or maybe others tell us that story. Maybe it's through their body language or just their facial expressions or how they talk to us, or maybe... It's even what we see in the media. And this is all part of the messaging that we receive from our environment that shapes our unconscious beliefs about ourselves and about others. In Reveal Your Path, which is my coaching program, we call it the environment of excellence. And these are the people and the messages and the mindsets that influence us. And today's interview is all about revealing these hidden secrets that are stored inside of our minds about who we are, who others are, and the resulting unconscious actions that we take, whether we know it or not. So Dr. Bryant Marks, our guest today, he's a social psychologist and a professor at Morehouse College. He conducts research and professional development around implicit bias, and he's trained tens of thousands of professionals across many industries on the topic. And this is a fascinating conversation that we had that you're about to listen to. You can get all the notes in the action plan. Just go to jimharshawjr.com slash action. There's a, a test that he talks about in the episode. This is an implicit bias test that he references. And I have the link to that in the action plan. So you can grab that there and test this stuff out for yourself and see where you land. And if you see this episode posted on social media, please give it a retweet, give it a share, give it a comment, give it a like, because that is how this podcast grows and how I'm able to get these great guests on to bring them to you. All right, here we go. Let's get into it. My interview with Dr. Bryant Marks. What is implicit bias? So implicit bias is essentially when a stereotype, which is sort of an exaggerated association of a group with a trait, can affect how we think, feel, or behave at an unconscious level. That's pretty much it. And so, you know, when you think of certain groups, if I say police officer, you think male, you have an association of male with police officer. You're not a bad person because 88% of police officers are men. If I say nurse and you think female, not a bad person, but you associate female with nurses. That's the foundation of implicit bias. Are these implicit associations that we develop over our lifetime that can influence just how we think about someone when they walk in the door, how we feel about them, liking or disliking them based upon the group to which they belong, or how we behave, which can take the form of discrimination. We may provide certain benefits to one group and some disadvantages to another. So it could be favorable or unfavorable. Implicit biases could be either one. Absolutely. There are basically two key ingredients for having implicit bias. Only two. Living in society, number one. And number two, having a brain. That's it. If you live in society and have a brain, you have implicit bias. It comes with the package, right? Think about the brain as like the hardware. We all have one, but our brain is designed to lock in associations. Even if you have a learning difference, we lock in associations. It is the foundation of learning, flight versus fight, that sort of thing. So if we live in our society and you're supposed to one group and it's positive traits of that group, a different group, negative traits of that group, you're going to lock it in implicitly, automatically. So yes, some associations are positive with certain groups. Others can be negative. So it can work either way. It's all about disproportionate exposure. 
and we're all overexposed to certain groups and certain traits or certain groups in certain roles. Why does our brain work this way? Like, this is just human nature. Like, why is this built into our brain? Was there ever a, a purpose for it? My evolutionary psychologist friends would argue that there's an evolutionary benefit to it. Let's go with flight versus fight. So back in the day, the first human beings on the African Serengeti, and you're out, you know, walking, you see this lion coming at you, just running and growling. You're not going to say, oh, that's a lion coming at me. What should I do? No, your instinct is to run because you've come to associate danger with that lion just by living in society and having a brain. That association is there. So those who could associate these fruits and berries are nutritious. This food I can eat, that stuff I cannot eat. It enhanced their survival likelihood. So from an evolution perspective, our goal is to live to reproductive age, pass on our genes. And whatever facilitates that process is going to be reinforced and passed on. And so some would say, yes, the ability to associate one thing with another is foundational to existence and it enhances survival. And it can help you avoid danger as well. In modern times, where we have complex social organizations and hierarchies, it's a bit more nuanced, a bit more layered. Every association is not about survival, but it's still built upon that foundation of overexposure to a group and a trait or one thing and another. It doesn't have to be a group. It can be an animal. It could be a, when I say apple, what comes to mind? You might think red, yellow, green. You might think you make apple pie or drink apple juice, right? You may think George Washington. I don't know. I mean, that's a cherry tree, but, but the notion is you might, different things come to mind when I just say the object. So you have sort of a, a cognitive network around objects or people. So this is hardwired into us. It's natural. It was helpful for us in the evolutionary sense. It seems like such a nebulous thing. It's just this thing. We can't measure it. It feels like, but can we? I mean, is this something that you can quantify and measure? Yeah, so there's several ways. So social psychologists and sociologists have been looking at this for, in a formal sense for about 50 years or so. And so we, there are several measures of implicit attitudes, implicit associations. The most well-known, probably the implicit associations test, the IAT. This is uh, Anthony Greenwald and Mazarin Banaji. And you can just Google it, the implicit associations test. The first two links pop up. It's in the Harvard-based test. So you click on a link and take it to the site. There's over 30 different tests you can take. They're all free. You get your results in 10 to 12 minutes. You can assess your implicit bias of gay people versus straight people, black versus white, male, female, by religion, disability, over 30 different tests that you can take. And then there's other tests that are pencil and paper. It's subtle as well. So there are different ways that we get at the implicit. And some would say that the implicit is more of a pure measure of bias uh, associations than explicit. It's not cool to be an ism, racist, ageist, sexist. That's not cool. So if you have a question about how you feel about a certain group, people may be motivated to answer in a certain way that they feel is socially acceptable. At the implicit level, you cannot control it to that extent. However, here's a caveat. The extent to which your implicit associations or attitudes predict explicit behavior, that varies. And that's where the controversy comes in around the IAT and other measures is what does it predict? It measures the associations pretty well. That's solid science. How well it predicts explicit behavior, that depends on the behavior, depends on the person, depends on the situation. And for the listener, we talk a lot about mindset and about the unconscious mind and how it controls and dictates our actions. And one of my favorite quotes is, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will control your life and you will call it fate. And really, that's what we're talking about here is this unconscious stuff going on in our hardwiring that is resulting in thoughts or certainly actions that 
happen in the world, whether it's the food you eat or the person that you hire or how you interact with somebody in your classroom. And, and I was fascinated to discover in my research for our conversation here, Dr. Marks, that our strongest negative biases is around elderly people followed by obese people. That surprised me. Mm -hmm. Well, a couple of things. To your point about the unconscious, yes. Some psychologists would estimate that 80 to 90% of our thoughts and behaviors throughout the day, unconscious, automatic. We do not process them at a conscious level. Like just think about your facial expression. Like I'm looking at you right now. You're not thinking about your face, but I see it. It is communicating. Most of us throughout our days are not consciously thinking about our facial expressions, but they're there the whole time. And they're communicating the whole time. So there's a lot of nonverbals, a lot of different things that happen that are completely unconscious. And so, yes, when you have to make decisions, so bias tends to creep up in moments of discretion, moments of decision. It might be some small decisions or it might be major decisions, performance evaluations or looking at a resume. Do I invite this person in for an interview? All types of things can happen. But yes, the unconscious is a driving factor because your brain is so efficient. It's processing the world in milliseconds all the time. Like each time you walk outside, you don't have the process. The grass is green. The sky is blue. Your brain is doing all that. But if you walked outside and the sky was purple, you notice it because your brain is like, oh, it doesn't fit my schema, my expectation of the sky. So it's going to make the unconscious conscious. You're going to notice it and then maybe have some questions. But if it fits in what you expect, your brain is like a checklist. It's checking a box for you. Now, in terms of elderly people and obesity, and it seems counterintuitive, but when you think about it, it actually makes sense. Think about it. What other group? will all of us eventually join when it comes to bias, right? Every single one of us, if we live long enough, will become elderly. And what do we associate with being old, right? The science says negative physical traits, right? Gray hair, wrinkles, Alzheimer's, immobile, diapers, Viagra, stuff like that. And people do say diapers and Viagra. But the notion is we associate these negative traits with the elderly. But I don't care if you're Black, white, Hispanic, Asian, male, female, rich or poor. Father time is un defeated. All of us are heading that way. Okay. So you can't take it with you. So think about it. It is a universal group. If we're all headed that direction, what's the point of us having a negativity bias around that, around elderly people? It goes back to the formula because over our lifetimes, we're overexposed to negative traits of elderly people. What do you associate with elderly people? <laughs> Wrinkles, diet, all these bad things. I mean, people say, yeah, wisdom and experience. Okay. But outside of that, mostly negative. And then what happens after you're old? What's the next chapter? You die. So wait a minute. I'm going to join this group. My body's going to fall apart and then I'm going to die. Yep. Right. Who wants to join that group? So the notion is that the ratio of positive and negative. So you have these negative traits with the elderly and you have positive traits with youth. People like youth. They like smooth skin. They like toned bodies. There's certain positives associated with youth and you got negatives with the elderly. That's what I think about in, in the U.S. in particular. We will manipulate our bodies to the tune of billions of dollars to keep that younger version as long as we can. What do we do? We get the comb over, get a little color, get a little nip, get a little tuck. We get spanked up and sucked in and all these different things. Why is that? To maintain the younger version of ourselves. Yeah. And that's attractive. And it makes sense, again, in the evolutionary sense, like because that makes you attractive and greater sex appeal. Even if you're not thinking of that consciously, it's like unconsciously we are more accepted if we're attractive and therefore we have a bias towards those things. Pretty much. And so we'll spend billions, billions to do that. So getting a nip or a tuck, that is not a health decision most of the time. That is a beauty decision. Like if you got to get gastro bypass, something like that, okay, I get that. But sometimes people just want to look better. And they'll pay a lot of money to look better and look younger. So 
What other group do we associate death? Just think about it. And it makes sense. You go to a funeral, your grandparents, there's an elderly body in a casket. That's good. They live a nice, long life. That's a good thing. But you still are exposed to that association. Elderly body, casket. Elderly body, death. Which on the one hand is a good thing, but on the other hand is forming the association. So now you think of that group, you think about negativity, you think about death at an implicit level, you're still a good person, but the association has been established. So let's be clear. This is not a good person, bad person thing. This is just the nature of people. Yes. The character is irrelevant when it comes to implicit bias. So why is this important? How does it affect people? Because again, 80 to 90% of our thoughts, behaviors throughout the day, driven by implicit processes. So it's very important because in every major facet of American life in the U.S., we have racial and ethnic disparities. So just talking about in, in the U.S., right? Healthcare, income, education, housing, criminal justice, employment, all of them, every single one of them has racial and ethnic disparities. I'm talking about you could have a resume, one resume, and a resume saying James versus Jamal. James most likely to be called in for the interview. Same resume, copy and paste it word for word. Ethnic names and resumes, Malik. Aisha, Jamal, less likely to be called in for an interview than mainstream sounding names on the same resume. Mike, John, James. Same resume, copy and paste it word for word, different outcome depending on the name. Now, if I'm a hiring manager, I don't even know what that's happening. I look at the resume, I say, Jamal. I don't say, ooh, Jamal, uh, he's a young black male. I don't like them. No job for him because he's a young black male. No. But Jamal activates the category black male. And I've been living in society having a brain. And over my lifetime, I've come to be exposed to negative traits with young black males. So now I look at the name, all this is triggered. I don't even know it, making it implicit. I'm still a good person, but it's already activated. So now I'm, I'm reading the resume with this negative feeling. Yeah, I don't know. He looks okay, but you know, I don't know if he's going to be a fit for our culture. No interview for him. And I can still be a good person, not even knowing it's happening. Even in performance evaluations. So there's another study that came out in 2014 when they looked at uh, law firms. So they gave a resume out to partners in a law firm. So there's like 40 partners in a law firm. And they all got the same research brief. And half, about 20 of them, were led to believe the brief was written by a white associate. The other led to believe it was written by a black associate. Same resume. Now, in this resume, there were errors, some typos, grammatical mistakes, that sort of thing. What did they find? The partners who thought that the brief was written by a black associate found more errors and gave it a lower rating. Those who thought the same brief was written by a white associate gave it a higher rating, didn't find as many errors. Remember, it's the same resume. Now let's, let's deconstruct this. If I'm a partner over here, and I believe this is a black associate that wrote this brief, as soon as I know, okay, who wrote this brief? Black person. As soon as I know it's a black person, ask me the category for black people. And the traits, stereotypes, associated categories are activated automatically in milliseconds. So what do we know about the traits or stereotypes associated with black folks in the U.S.? Lack of professionalism, not as smart, you know, not as well-read, educated, that sort of thing. It's already activated just by me knowing their category. So now it becomes a confirmation bias. I'm expecting to find errors based upon who the author is. So now I'm reading it line by line, expecting I'm catching every single error because I expect it to be there. Partners over here, okay, who wrote this? A white associate? Okay, okay, turn it in. The same traits are not activated. The same expectations are not there. And this, we're talking all milliseconds automatically, and these are still good people. And that's not what happens. This next question may be larger than we can cover in this interview, but why does that implicit bias against Black people exist? And the resume example and the performance review example, why is that there? Where does it come from? Now, people have isms, racism, sexism, ageism, bias, group-based bias, all sorts of reasons. A couple of key ones, a lack of exposure to diversity within another group. So we tend to be overexposed to our in-groups and underexposed to out-groups. And that lack of exposure can cause sort of a rift or differentiation in perception. 
Say, for example, as a black person, and this has been shown even with police lineups, but as a black person, I can very easily differentiate skin tone, eye color, hair texture amongst black people because I've been around it all my life. For white people, you might say, her hair is a sandy brown, a blonde. I'm like, whatever, it's blonde. Like, I won't know all the nuance, all the layers because I have been underexposed to the outgroup. Now, in the U.S., I'm more likely to expose the white people because white folks make up the majority. But in terms of day to day, I'm going to have a sort of a balance of exposure that's a bit different. What tends to happen is when we're underexposed to an outgroup, we tend to see them through stereotypical general terms. When I was at the University of Michigan as a graduate student, I was an advisor, a counselor in the psychology department, and I advised undergrads. And so I had several undergrads. For those who don't know, Michigan is shaped like a hand. The upper part of Michigan is called the Upper Peninsula. I had several white students at the University of Michigan who said the first time they saw a Black, Hispanic, or Asian person in person was when they came to college. They'd never seen them. They were underexposed. So the whole impression of those groups was through the media, movies, and TV. Now, I don't blame them. Why? Because where do we grow up? We grow up in the places our parents decide we grow up. I can't blame a kid because their parents decided to live in a certain town. I can't say what's wrong with you. No, they live where their parents live. Okay. But they acknowledge they have been underexposed. And that now they're meeting these people in person and they're seeing the diversity of each of these groups. And it's just sort of challenging their preconceived notions. So one of the key bases for bias is underexposure to outgroups, overexposure to in-groups. And then when we're overexposed to our in-group, we tend to favor our in-group. Your family, your friends, we're around them, we favor them. And we tend to treat our in-group members slightly or much better than out-group members. It's the nature of the human condition. So if you see somebody, like when people say things like, we're losing our country, like our country, like our in a possessive pronoun sense, like it's theirs, and these other people doesn't belong to them. So that's saying that somehow they're part of a group, then this country belongs to their group, and it does not belong to other groups. That's very interesting. Because what's the criteria of possession? How do you determine whose country this is in the objective scientific sense? Very subjective, right? But if I can see somebody as the other, as not belonging, I can show bias towards them because I'm going to favor my in-group. But in my statement is your solution. What if we could expand the in-group? All of us as Americans, we're all Americans. The out-group is Europe, right? You know, we can form out-groups with the external, but if we all saw each other as Americans and we all belong, we could all bond with each other. But if I see myself as a certain type of American and you're different and you're different, you're different, the bias will still form. So that in-group, out-group bias is another key element amongst others. So like 10 that we go over in our trainings, but those are two key ones. What about to the person who says, well, when I turn on the evening news, it's young black males who I see getting in trouble. And that does happen. It's gotten actually better, believe it or not, over the last few years. It still happens, but not with the frequency like the 80s and 90s. But yes, it's about exposure. So they're watching the six o'clock news. If it bleeds, it leads. First 10 to 8, 12 minutes in the A block, they see these things. And so yes, overexposure, get that associated. Every time they see it, that's a data point, a data point, a data point. Every time they see it, they can be a good person, but they're overexposed to this group and this trait day to day. And so at a conscious level, they can say, oh, black folks commit all the crime. That's intellectually lazy, but they could come to that conclusion. Or they can say, well, maybe it's just that the media, we tend to lead with these violent crimes. And in our urban area, it disproportionately happens in black communities for a variety of reasons, right? So they have to sort of want to go there. Over-policing, lack of resources, the family structure, education, all of that is behind crime. Which all of the things that you just said, by the way, I believe is all tied to implicit bias, like the lack of resources and all of the other things, like it's tied to a history of implicit bias going back hundreds of years in our country. Absolutely. 
So people say today, well, black folks just need to get over it and everything else, and it's on them. Okay, if we're intellectually honest <laughs> and just rewind the clock, these dots are very, very easy to connect. Okay. When people say things like, yeah, we're a nation of immigrants, nation of immigrants, that is not true. Everybody listening, please, if you're multitasking right now, please stop and listen to what I'm about to say. The United States of America is not, has not been, and never was a nation of immigrants. That is factually incorrect. <laughs> Think about it. When you say the U.S. is a nation of immigrants, in the same breath, you are dismissing the Native American experience and the African American experience. Why? Native Americans were already here. They were slaughtered or displaced. African Americans were kidnapped and brought here in chains by force to what many argue was the worst form of slavery in human history. That is not immigration. Immigration is a voluntary act. Look at the word immigration. To migrate is a voluntary act, to seek a better life or refuge on purpose with intent, okay? It's not voluntary if you're kidnapped and forced here. No other group in the history of the U.S. was enslaved in American story besides Black folks. So why would you today, think about it logically, and didn't Native Americans hold up a thing. Why would you expect the descendants of terrorism and trauma and slavery and genocide today, their descendants, to be in the same socioeconomic status or station in life as the descendants of immigrants and privilege? That is irrational, illogical, and downright silly. Don't make any sense, okay? If you have different input for hundreds of years, you're going to have different output. This is a logical conclusion. So yes, today we have these perceptions that are rooted in hundreds of years of history. Quick interruption. Hey, if you like what you're hearing, be sure to get the notes, quotes, and links in the action plan from this episode. Just go to jimharshawjr.com slash action that's jimharshawjr.com slash action to get your free copy of the action plan. Now, back to the show. If you were on a panel right now, and maybe you've been on panels before, where there's somebody who is trying to poke holes in your argument, or maybe you have an audience and somebody stands up and says, yeah, but what are the rebuttals that you hear to what we're talking about here today? It's emotional. All I say is, show me the data. Show me the data that says... Two black men who are getting sentenced, the black man doesn't get a longer sentence. Show me the data that says on a resume, Jamal versus James, Jamal's at a disadvantage. Show me the data that says if you get a housing appraised and it's perceived to be a black family versus a white family, the house is appraised at a lower value. Show me the data that says those things are not happening today. We did not even talk about historically. I can cite you studies from this year. You can just Google this stuff. Every facet of American life is still showing disparities. So if they can show me some science that says that's not the case, then I'm all ears. I cannot deal with the emotions because I can't argue with emotions. I'm showing you what's happening. You show me that it's not. And they can't. So oftentimes when I see it's emotional, I just let them talk and okay. And I'll just say, can you show me some data to support that? What are you basing that on? And they can't produce it. So don't get into emotional arguments with folks around this stuff. Critical race theory, all that stuff. Don't let it get emotional. It's so emotional though. It's such an emotional thing. And, and I'll be frank, my podcast is about success failure, learning from failure. This is part of what we're going to talk about here, but it is an emotional topic. I was in major gift fundraising you know, years ago for the University of Virginia. I was talking with a woman, very successful, and, and she said, boy, as a white male, you must feel so, I forget what the word she said. It was something along the lines of like persecuted as a white male. And I always believe that if we disagree with somebody, the best way to sort of come to agreement, because we're not trying to win a fight here, an argument, the best way to come to an agreement or agree with each other and find the common ground is to put yourself in that person's shoes and have to explain the situation from their point of view. Okay. So from her point of view, she's seeing things like 
affirmative action and white males being blamed and sort of maybe culturally, or there's a, a sense of that, that white men are the problem or the source of the problem. So I can understand where she's coming from on that side. But as a white male, I mean, I, I look around and I look at, you know, CEOs and presidents and people of influence and, and they look like me. But I do understand there's a grain of truth on that side. There's information that she's going off of that made her say that. Yeah, and provide some context for your audience. So I'm a professor, I'm a social psychologist, academic with tenure at Morehouse College, University of Michigan. University of Michigan was grad school, professor at Morehouse College. And we established a National Training Institute on Race and Equity. We provide diversity and anti-bias training to many different sectors, okay? So I'm, I'm coming to your question. So we train corporations, public, private sectors, nonprofits, and a lot of police officers. I have personally trained over 50,000 police officers, the entire LAPD. Seattle PD, Philadelphia PD, Phoenix PD. I train them all myself personally in a lot of small towns all over the country. Develop a significant respect for these officers and what they do. Now, sometimes a pushback in terms of white male officers in particular, because they have the white male and the police thing on top of the white male piece, is that yes, they feel they're being judged, they're not appreciated. People just assume they're racist because they're white male and they're a cop, that sort of thing. So, in those spaces, the thing I respect about police, they respond to evidence and I give them the evidence. I'm saying you're not a bad person. But if over your lifetime, and you think about the TV and movies you've watched, and you've seen 500 associations of positive traits in white people, and 50 associations of positive traits of black people, and vice versa, 500 negative for black, 50 negative for white, just the exposure alone, take your character out of it. You don't think your brain is going to associate different traits with different groups. And that's how we keep it. Now, to your point about empathy, critically important. That is one of our core solutions in our work. We have these exercises where we have our audiences empathize with different groups. So you do an exercise with young black males. And we have a word cloud. When Americans think of young black males, what words or phrases come to mind? And the words pop up on the screen. The top five, dangerous, criminal, thug, rapper, athlete. And that's all across the country. Over 100,000 people. Everybody gets the same answers, right? And then we ask them, what if that was your personal brand? What if you had to go through life day to day, go to the doctor, you're going for a job, get pulled over by the police, and the traits people associate with you are dangerous, criminal, thug, rapper, athlete. I'm not judging them. You got to see what I'm doing there. I'm not judging them because we ask them a question. They respond. It's up on the screen. It's their data. Now I'm saying, okay, what if this applied to you? And the thing is, the reason they can give that data is because they live in society and have a brain. They don't have to believe it. Folks, belief is not necessary for implicit bias. All implicit bias requires is exposure. Explicit bias requires belief. Explicit bias, blatant racism and sexism, you know, don't live in my neighborhood, don't date my kids, I'm not going to hire you. That is a character issue because people know what they're doing. Implicit bias, simply an exposure issue. Living in society, having a brain. The two intersect, you have implicit bias. That's your process. So what do we do about it? How do we mitigate, limit the negative effects of this, you know, in the interview, in the performance review, in policing, and otherwise, what do we do? Maybe in the interview, for example, or the resume. Right. So resume, that's a straightforward one. Take the name off. Why do you need to see somebody's name on a resume to determine they're fit for a job? Like what matters when you hire somebody? Education, experience, qualifications, their name, which they did not give themselves, by the way. How is that in any way relevant? Their address. Take that off too. You mean to tell me to determine if somebody's a fit for a job, you need to know their address down to their apartment number. How is that relevant? So again, either it's a neutral or it can cause bias. Take it off. Yeah. And if you want to succeed, if your job is a leader or in a hiring role is to hire the best candidate at the end of the year and I get my performance review and I go meet with my boss and I have to hit certain metrics, the best way to do that or one of the best ways to do that is to get the best people on my team and to get the best people, 
I want to remove any implicit biases I may have so that I can look at the facts and the data and the information that will help me get the right person, the best person. You want the best people. And so we would tell our clients, especially our Fortune 500 clients, don't hide behind, oh, there's no black and brown people in a pipeline. You can find them. First of all, show me how wide a net you're casting. Because if you cast a wide net in the United States of America, you're going to catch some good people, right? So that whole notion that they don't exist, very rarely is that the case. Now, if you're in you know, a rural area, someplace that's undesirable, would they want to come? Maybe not. But do they exist? Usually, yes. I mean, if you talk about a very specialized a neuroscientist with a certain, okay, fine. But for many other occupations, those folks do exist. But I would say, like, so some people are going to say, well, the, the net is the net. Like, you know, we post a job on monster.com or one of these, you know, indeed.com where we go to, I'm at the University of Virginia and, you know, the companies will come and we'll do like interviews of any student who wants to show up and do sort of like the preliminary interviews. Isn't that a wide enough net? No, <laughs> because it doesn't actually include intentionality. So say you got Indeed, Monster, Zip Recruiter, or whatever the case is. People don't tend to advertise on all of them. Of the four or five, they'll maybe select two or three. What was the basis of that selection? Do you go to Indeed, LinkedIn, whatever else, and say, show me the demographics and your database of the people in this particular industry? And you have them show the database and how diverse it is. They have that data. They can tell you how diverse their database is for different sectors. They can tell you that. And then you can decide as an employer, we're going to go with the outlet that has the most diverse candidates in that category. Or you can say, well, that company's running a promotion. We can get three months and go with the cheap option. That's what happens. When I say cast the net, being intentional about your selection, being intentional. Like people have employee referral programs. Okay, that's nice. It's cute. But if you're already lacking diversity, if you're homogeneous, the thing is this. Who do people know? They know people who like them, who think like them and look like them. So the likelihood, if you're not diverse and people refer to their friends, they're not going to be diverse either. Now, if you are already diverse, that's different. That's great referral programs. The people who refer to in-groups, you're already diverse, you keep it diverse. But yeah, this notion of casting a wide net, when we train, we do a whole implicit bias mitigation from the interview. I mean, resume review, interviews is very detailed, very deep. And most folks are not doing all of it. They're covering themselves from an EEOC lawsuit. That's what they're doing. They're doing the minimum. So I would say this. Since George Floyd, many organizations have become a bit more serious. I can push them a little more. It doesn't have this check the box feel all the time. But for some companies, I know when they're just checking the box. Because some people are creative. They'll use a name on a resume as a proxy for diversity. They want to diversify their workforce. So they want the names to be there. So it's a little clue. That's not 100%. My name is Bryant Marks. Those are European names. You wouldn't know I was black. It can cut either way. But if your organization is serious, you tell HR. All the resumes go to HR. HR, you categorize. Male, female, minority, whatever. You can tell us if this is a minority candidate. I don't need to see the name. I don't need to see the address. But I can factor that in because I know in the U.S., certain life circumstances may have them not scoring as high on a certain test, right? Because the science says there's other things that are at play, and I can factor that in. So I can still be intentional about diversifying my workforce in an equitable manner. What else can we do? Systematically. So that's one example, taking the name off of the resume, maybe the address off the resume as well. What about the performance reviews or otherwise? Any other solutions you propose? Yeah. So what you want to do is what we call a blind review. So the notion is whatever you're evaluating, making a decision evaluating, try to remove the basis of bias. So the category. So the name activates a category, Jamal, or a picture, or somebody's address. It activates Black, White, Hispanic because there's different traits associated with them. I also want to mention, we're talking about race, but also like obesity. Like if you have a photograph of an obese person or an older person or a person who just looks older in a photograph, that's going to affect you too. So we're talking about race, but also these other things. Yeah. Whatever is a cue for the category, take the cue away. 
That's a blinding technique. And so then what do we do? You get a resume, be honest. You get a resume and it'll have you like the year they graduated from college and you find yourself trying to calculate how old they are. You see, I mean, it almost happens automatically. And that's the age thing. Take the graduation year off. What matters? Does it matter they have the degree in this or when they got their degree? And now you're calculating age. So the blinding technique can be very powerful. It's often very simple. And the foundation of this is this. When I mention implicit bias affecting how we think, feel, and behave, of those three, behave is by far the most important. Why? I may never change somebody's mind, the stereotypes, the traits. I may never change their heart, prejudice, like or dislike on somebody, but I can regulate behavior as a boss, as a policymaker. I can say, we don't do that here. You can think what you want, you can feel what you want, but you're not going to treat people this certain way because we can see it, we can measure it. That's where you want to start, observable behavior. So if you have these resumes and you see that there's some favoritism and look at the outcome, don't try to interpret intent and feelings. You go to them and say, look, I don't know how you think or feel, but I know we got some disparities here and we need to close this gap. So blinding yourself, that's one thing. Making people aware just by having implicit bias training makes people more aware. The thing is, when people think of this bias stuff, it's not all egregious and awful, but lawful. It's not super bad. Usually in the workplace in particular, bias is subtle. It's when you have two options and you choose one option for a certain group of people and another option for another group. And if I called you on it, you could justify either one because both of them are options. That's like cops giving a ticket or a warning. They can do either. They have discretion. But if we find, and this has been shown, that women are less likely to get tickets than men, especially if they are attractive. But most police officers don't keep track of that over time. They think they're fair and impartial. But I can pull the last 100 women, last 100 men tickets under similar circumstances. 30% of women got tickets. 50% of men got tickets. That's bias. But the thing is, if I pull anyone stop, they can give a ticket or a warning. They can justify either option. But when I look at it as a pattern of behavior, that's when a bias shows up. Bias shows up in patterns of behavior. It's very difficult to get that thoughts and feelings. So for the listener who says, okay, I get it. I believe I have these implicit biases. What is the success through failure learning here? Like we've failed at this. We don't even know we're failing and we just do. What is actionable for the listener, for the individual who maybe they're not in a hiring position or maybe they are, but they want to learn from this. They want to find success despite or maybe even because of failure in this area. I'll do a workplace and a personal example. So say you're a supervisor, say you're a white male. And you have a minority person who quits. And that was a really a good person, team player, competent. And it might happen twice, let's say. So you're having some trouble retaining women. Let's just say women in this case. You want to get the data. Go to them and say, look, I know you're leaving, but just help me understand because, you know, because there's always a push versus a pull when somebody leaves a job. There's a pull of a new opportunity or going to be the push from a toxic environment. They don't like it. They can push them out. So as a supervisor, I want to know what it is. I need to humble myself and say, you know what? You're leaving. Okay. I want to be better. Help me understand what it was about me or this place that played a role in potentially pushing you out and listen to what they say and make the adjustments. Why? Because it's implicit. You don't even know it's there. So you need the feedback. And one of the strongest forms of protest in a workplace is for somebody to quit. <laughs> and the thing is, the data show, although many people quit their jobs because of what they do, many others quit because of who they do it with. They just can't stand the people anymore. So you want to know if it's the environment or something about you. So if you fail to keep people that are good, if you have a 360 evaluation, you're getting low evaluations from the people that work for you, that sort of thing. In your personal life, say you're dating. And a lot of folks who are listening can, can relate to this. Imagine you're in your 20s and you're engaged to be married. And you're going to bring your fiance home for the first time to meet your family. But it's an interracial relationship. Here's the question. For what other group could your fiance come for whom your family would be the most accepting, the most supportive? They'd be like, well, not one of us, but you did all right. Now, I need you to think about specific family members and think about why. 
why would they be most accepting of somebody from that particular group? I mean, think about deceased or alive, grandparents, parents, aunts, uncles. Think about specific family members and think about why. You got to get to the why part. What reasons would they give? What rationale would they provide? Most accepting. Now let's flip it. What other racial group could your fiance come for whom your family would be the least accepting? They have the most objections, the most pushback. Uh, you know, not one of us. And you may want to think this over. I don't know. So think about specific family members and think about why. Why would he be most uncomfortable with somebody from that particular group? Think about the reasons they would give, the rationale they would provide. That's going to give you the context. Because we did not grow up in a vacuum. We grew up around people we love, called our friends and family, and we've been exposed to the jokes and the stereotypes and the prejudice and the biases. We've seen them. Some of us buy into them. Some of us push back. But the notion is we've been exposed. So as a parent, if I fail to expose my children to the diversity that exists in other groups, as a parent, am I really doing my job? If I'm creating a culture that says, I mean, we can have preferences. We all have preferences, right? You can have preferences, but is there a negative association to the point where I wouldn't even consider that group, but there's something deficient about them based upon how I was raised to see them? That's different. You can prefer one thing, but you can see another thing as deficient or lacking or negative. So as parents, what example are we setting? What conversations are we having? Because most of our deepest biases, folks, please hear me. <laughs> most of our deepest biases come from the people we love. And that's just the truth. Right? I'm not judging your people. Like, same thing applies to me. But the notion is, if you want to know where your deepest biases come from, you know, who you were dating and so forth, rewind the videos of your lives, go back to your childhood and look in the next room. Most of our deepest biases, people we love. Dr. Marks, where do people find you, follow you, learn more about your teachings, et cetera? So we are the National Training Institute on Race and Equity. Easiest way, www.national.training. Yes, dot training www.national.training. That's it. You click there, all the information you need to be there. We provide in-person and virtual trainings. We're mostly virtual at this point. Any sector from healthcare, education, social services, corporations, private equity, we do it all. And our approach is one of empathy and humanity. We're not guilt, shame, and blame. We don't do that. So people will leave our trainings feeling informed, entertained, educated, but not judged. That doesn't happen. Fantastic. Thank you for your time. Thank you, sir. Thanks for listening. If you want to apply these principles into your life, let's talk. You can see the limited spaces that are open on my calendar at jimharshawjr.com slash apply, where you can sign up for a free one-time coaching call directly with me. And don't forget to grab your action plan. Just go to jimharshawjr.com slash action. And lastly, iTunes tends to suggest podcasts with more ratings and reviews more often. You would totally make my day if you give me a rating and review. Those go a long way in helping me grow the podcast audience. Just open up your podcast app if you have an iPhone, do a search for success through failure, select it, and then scroll the whole way to the bottom where you can leave the podcast a rating and a review. Now, I hope this isn't just another podcast episode for you. I hope you take action on what you learned here today. Good luck and thanks for listening.